I want to begin this morning by expanding our vision a little bit. By expanding our vision a little bit. Imagine the Heisman Trophy, the coveted prize for college football athletes. It's what they work for, what they long for. Now imagine something better than that. Imagine the designation of valedictorian. Those in academic pursuits, pursuing the first, the, the head of the class. Now picture something better than the designation of being valedictorian. Picture the Medal of Honor, the greatest pr primary designation given to someone in the military. It's so prestigious, only the President of the United States on behalf of Congress can put it around someone's neck. Imagine being the scientist or the doctor who finds a cure for cancer. Now imagine something even better than that. What could be better than the Heisman Trophy, the designation of valedictorian, the Medal of Honor, or finding a cure to cancer? One day, when Jesus returns, everyone who has ever lived will stand before Almighty God. And on that day, King Jesus will say to those who trusted in him and lived for him, well done, good and faithful servant. On that day, no Heisman Trophy, no valedictorian dedication or designation, no medal of honor, no accolade in this life, including finding a cure to a horrible disease, will be worth more than hearing Jesus say the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Each day we live in this time, that day should be in our mind and our heart. That's what we should be setting our mind towards. To hear that amazing utter from the mouth of Christ. So what motivates us for that day? That's what our text is all about today. Our main point is that the display of God's justice is meant to motivate us to live for him. The display of God's justice is meant to motivate us to live for him. Now, a lot of times we talk about God's love, his grace, his mercy, as we should. And those motivate us to live for him as well. But our text today specifically talks about God's justice, his judgments motivating us to live for him. And that can seem like an oxymoron to some of us, but that is what we'll see. When God exercises his right his true, his just ways, it's meant to bring a comfort to us as his people. And it's meant to motivate us to live for him. So let's take a look. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open up to Revelation chapter 14. We are in a series going through the book of Revelation. We started uh, in January chapter 1, and now we're going through all the way to the end to 21. We're working our way through this, and we find ourselves in Revelation 14. Uh, Chris did an awesome job last week kicking us off, and I'm picking up where he left off. But I just want to put out a disclaimer this morning right in the beginning. We are getting into some really difficult things in this passage. It's going to talk about the judgment of God 
upon the evil on the earth and the end times. And it's often funny, uh, many people will come up before a series in the book of Revelation and say, we should do a series in the book of Revelation. We should study Revelation. Everybody wants to study Revelation. And then you get to the text that I'm going to talk about today and you're going to realize maybe this wasn't such a great idea. <laughs> because it's going to be one of those texts. It's going to be a hard thing for us to swallow and take in. But it's the truth of God's word and we submit ourselves to God's word. So I want to walk through this, and I imagine there's going to be things that we're going to see along this journey this morning that won't be easy for us to understand, but Lord willing, I think by the time we get to the end, we'll have a greater understanding. And the first thing that we see is the mercy and the judgment of God. The mercy and the judgment of God. In Revelation chapter 14, it kicks this off. This is what's kicked off. And if you remember back when I started this book, I said there's seven visions in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is broken up into seven different visions. This is the end of the fifth, beginning the sixth. That's what we're going to see this morning. And in the end of this fifth, we see a condensed version of what the final judgment is going to be on the earth when Jesus Christ comes. It's an abbreviated version, but it starts with Revelation 14, verse 14. It says this, I looked, and there before me was a white cloud. And seated on the white cloud, John says, was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. This is Jesus. Jesus is coming. He has the sickle in his hand. Look at verse 15 and 16. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who is sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. This is an allusion back to something that Jesus taught in Mark chapter 4. When he told this story, this parable, when he said, the grain is ripe, he will come and he will reap. In a moment, we're going to see there's a second sickle. There's a story here of two sickles. The first one that Jesus has is the promised mercy of God. Jesus first, before pouring out judgment on evil, reaps his own followers out of the world and brings them to himself. It's the promise of the gospel. Prior to the final judgment, the promise of God is that Jesus brings and gathers his people to himself so they will not experience this final judgment that will happen on earth. That's what we see happening in verses 14 to 16. But there's another sickle that comes. Let's look at 17 to 20. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on earth, gathered the grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the wine press outside the city and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horses' bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Again, John is using imagery here to paint a horrifying picture 
a snapshot of God's judgment. In contrast to Jesus' followers who were gathered with him before this time, now those who rejected Jesus and took the mark of the beast will experience God's wrath. It's interesting that this happens, it says in verse 20, outside the city. Just to contrast our Savior Jesus, who went to a cross outside the city of Jerusalem. Our Savior bore the judgment and wrath of God outside the city for our behalf. Now those who rejected that act of love and mercy, who bear the weight of God's wrath now outside the city in an intense and crushing punishment. The picture is startling. It's hard to read. Blood flowing as high as the horse's bridle, so like five feet. And 16,000 stadia, that's 160 miles long. What John is saying here is there's going to be this strict, harsh, intense judgment on those at the end who said, I refuse to follow Jesus Christ. Those who forever reject his loving offer to be placed in him and rescued from this time now declaring themselves enemies of God, will face this kind of wrath. God deals with hearts far from him throughout Scripture. We see how God deals with hearts far from him. We were among those who were far from him. We were among the people who were far from God, and he dealt with us in an amazing way. Here's how God walks through his actions in dealing with people who are considered his enemies. First, he displays and acts out his mercy. He shows his mercy to them. Number two, he calls them to repentance. He calls them to come and turn from their wicked ways and turn to him. Three, he gives them time. He gives them grace. He even gives them visions. In the Bible, we see stories of people whose lives were changed, and we see how it works. He gives them grace to turn to him. Four, they willfully turn towards God, or they willfully turn away to their idols. Five, those who turn toward him are hidden in Christ at the judgment in this end time. They're hidden and protected in Christ and those who willfully turn away from Christ face this intense judgment we see here. This is mercy and judgment. There's nothing unjust happening here. Some people say, I wish God was fair. Why is there hell? God should be fair. We don't want God to be fair. If God was fair, all of us who have sinned, which is all of us, would be banished from him, separated from him, in eternal conscious punishment forever. That's what we deserve. But God, in his mercy, provides this unfair and gracious escape from his justice and his wrath and his judgment upon those who turn their back on him. Through Jesus, who absorbed God's wrath and judgment at the cross, now those who repent, those who believe, those who accept Christ in their life, find mercy. They find grace. 
They're hidden in Christ during this time. They're protected. And those who blow off that gracious act of the cross find judgment. That is what we're seeing here. It's sobering, but it's truthful and it's reality. And if we're going to be people who honor God's word, we have to look at these things and we have to consider these things. And the journey continues. The fifth vision done, now we move into the sixth vision where we see the justice of God. The justice of God. Look at, uh, as we dive into 15, let me give you a little side note. If you remember, if you were with us, in the second vision, there were seven seals on a scroll. And as Jesus broke those seals, he broke the fourth one. And it talked about how there were these martyrs, these saints, and their prayers were in golden bowls presented to the throne. And their prayers were like incense that went to the throne. It's interesting, now we see that the bowls are being used for something else. The prayers were delivered in the bowls like incense. The bowls were emptied in the throne of God. And now as God is bringing forth his judgment on the earth, the bowls are the instrument that is used. It's a symbol that the prayers of the saints were answered. When, O oh God, are you going to avenge the evil who have done these things? And now the bowls are filled with the wrath of God and we see it poured out. Look at verses 1 to 4, verse 15. I saw in heaven another great marvelous sign, John says, seven angels with seven, lag, seven last plagues. Last because with them God's wrath is complete. This is the final judgment on the earth of those who are turned against God forever. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea those who had been given victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? In this condensed version, we see the completion of God's wrath being poured out. We get a glimpse into heaven and we see into heaven what's happening as God is unfolding his wrath on the earth. And what is heaven's response as God begins his final judgment on the wicked and the evil on the earth in this day? What is heaven's response? It's worship. It's worship. That's striking because we get graphic detail about what the judgment of God is like, that river of blood, and we see that, and we cringe, and somewhat rightly so. But then we see in our cringing as we see this play out that the response of heaven is worship. Why would heaven worship when God's judgment is being laid out in such a graphic, horrifying way on earth? Because God is acting in his righteous justice character. You see, many times in the contemporary church, we only talk about the parts of God we like or the parts of God we understand. And one of the things we might not like or understand is that there's a righteous judgment that God pours out on evil that will happen in these last days. And it's poured out because God 
has to punish evil because he's just and holy. Evil and wickedness cannot reign in his forever kingdom. And so in his righteous character, he pours that out. And we see that throughout the scriptures. Biblically, there are three expressions of God's judges, justice that we see poured out in the Bible, rolled out in the Bible. Three expressions of God's justice you see throughout the pages of scripture. And they're meant to bring us comfort, which might sound odd, but it's true. The first expression that we see of God's justice is the wrath of God on evil and the wicked. The wrath of God on evil and the wicked. That's what we're seeing here in this text. God is expressing out of his righteous character, he's taking a stop to evil and wicked ways. The ancient church found comfort in that. Throughout the Bible, you see God's people taking comfort in that. The Psalms are saying, God, when are you going to bring vengeance on these people who are doing wicked and evil things? They're doing wicked in the earth. God, when are you going to move? And then when God does, like he did, they took comfort in that. It's not that we're happy this happens, but there's this sense of rightness, this sense of justice It's a comfort that God is going to do what is right. And we are to take comfort in the fact that God will bring judgment on evil things and the wicked and they will come to an end. And he will do that not just because he has judgment, but also because he has mercy. When God sees an oppressed people, he has mercy upon them by taking judgment upon the wicked. And here the offense is against a holy God. And God acts in his righteous judgment. And that's uncomfortable for us at times. But we can trust it's the right thing because God will never do anything unjust. God will always do the right thing. There's another expression of God's justice in the Bible, and it's the wrath of God satisfied at the cross of Jesus, and we take comfort in that. We like that one in the 21st century church, as we should, and we should dive into that. The fact that Jesus became your sin and my sin, went to the cross, and God the Father poured out his wrath, his punishment upon Jesus Christ, not you and I. He stood in our place. He absorbed God's holy wrath and justice. He died. He rose again in victory. And now that we who come and accept him into our life, we get to stand in the righteousness of Christ, not our own broken righteousness. And we do that because of his mercy and his grace and his goodness. He absorbed the wrath and the justice of God the Father. Jesus did on the cross. What a beautiful expression. And we take comfort in that. There's a creed that says, what is the Christian's comfort in this life and in death? That Jesus Christ went to the cross and paid for our sin. The final way we see God's justice expressed in Scripture is in the discipline that God has in the lives of his children. God disciplines us as his kids sometimes. And he does so because he's a good father. The Bible speaks of God doing justice when he lovingly disciplines his children to reprove us, 
to bring us closer to what he wants for us, to help us turn from our sinful ways. We never want to get on the opposite side of God. Let me repeat that. We never want to get on the opposite side of God. Why? Because he's some ogre that's going to come out and crush us? No, because he's our creator and he knows what's best for us. And when we choose to live outside of his ways or outside of his commandments, we choose to live in ways harmful to us. Life is at its best when we live in his ways. And so when we wander, when we meander out of love for us, he disciplines us to bring us back to him. And isn't that what a loving father would do? So we see here in verses 3 and 4 that all of heaven is worshiping and rejoicing in the character of God as he rolls out his justice. And then look what happens next in verses 5 to 8 of chapter 15. After this, I looked and I saw in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen. They wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. No one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. God's judgment's now rolling out and we get a bigger picture. Seven angels with those seven bowls of wrath, seven plagues being ready to drop on the earth to all those who are still living there who are turned their back on God. The biggest thing to grab here is the end of verse 8. It says, no one could enter the temple. On earth at this time are those who are evil, and this means nothing can withstand God's wrath against a sinful and evil world. At this point, the approach to God is closed. Access to him and reconciliation is done for the wicked. At this point, there is no longer recourse for the willful, disobedient humanity that still exists on earth. Not everyone goes to heaven. Some churches don't tell you that. They teach the opposite. But you won't find that in the Bible. Those who willfully and intentionally disobey and turn their back on God's offer of grace at the cross, and in the last days they take the mark of the beast, they will face God's righteous judgment. And that's the truth of what his word says. The journey continues. We see this unfolding of God's judgment. Look at verse 16. It says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, this is the voice of Jesus, Go pour the seven bowls of God's wrath on earth. It's interesting to me as I was studying, I was thinking about Jesus' last words to the church before he ascended to heaven was, go into the world and make disciples of all nations. Now that period has ended. This is the end times. And now God is saying to these angels that hold the wrath of God, 
to be poured upon the wicked. Go and deliver the wrath. What a sobering thing. What a horrifying thing. And then we see the seven angels go and they pour out their bowls on earth as God's righteous judgment. Today, I only have time to look at the first four. And as I mentioned, these bowls once hold the prayers of the saints who said how long, and now the bowls are being filled with God's wrath and dumped out as that prayer is answered. Look at verse 2. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. It's interesting that these seven bowls of wrath so replicate the plagues that we saw in the Egypt against Pharaoh in Exodus 7 and 8. And now this wrath comes and its sores are poured out on the people who took the mark. It's interesting, they took the mark of the beast and now they're marked with sores. Those who willfully turned against Jesus and his offer, who worshiped the false god of the beast, are now judged at the end time. Verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned into blood like that of a dead person and every living thing in the sea died. If you remember back in chapter 8, we saw prejudgments. There's these little inklings, these little uh, beginning quakes of judgment, and there a quarter of the sea was affected, then a third of the sea here in total judgment, the whole seas of the earth are affected. Verse 4, a third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. This is all of the, it symbolizes all that would sustain life on earth at this point. The springs of water, all water necessary to sustain life. The earth at this point is inhabited only by the wicked and now God cuts off the ability to sustain life. And what do the two angels say who carried this out? Look at verses five and six. Then I heard an, the angel in charge of the waters say, you are just in these judgments, O Holy One. You who are and who were, for they have shed blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. It's a sobering thing, but the ancient world took comfort in that. And there's a comfort for us in that as well, if we see it. And the comfort is that God is good and he will not allow evil to rule and reign or go unpunished forever. They destroyed the church in horrifying ways. They destroyed others in horrifying ways. And they turned their back on God. And now justice is being poured out. Verse 7, and I heard the altar respond. That's interesting, the altar. Hold that in your memory a second. Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Keep your finger in chapter 16 and turn back in a moment to chapter 6 of the book of Revelation. Look at chapter 6, verse 9. This is when I was telling you about Jesus breaking open those seals. When he opened the fifth seal, he said he saw under the altar. Notice 16, verse 7, I heard from the altar. 
6 verse 9, under the altar, the souls of those who've been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they maintained. These are people who are faithful to God and they lost their lives before, because of it. They called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Now, in verse 9, 8 and 9 of 16, this is happening this whole chapter is happening, and those at the altar say, yes, Lord Almighty, true and just are your judgments. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around the justice of God, but it is good, and it is real. God is being faithful to what he said to them in chapter 6. Look at 8 and 9. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They, seared, they were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God. Even at that point, they're still not turning. They cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues. Why? But they refused to repent and glorify him. These people were so wicked, they would never, ever repent, no matter what would happen. They refuse to repent and glorify God. And when you get to that place, we see here, the stakes are incredibly high. If all of us, these things listed here, make us uncomfortable, in one sense, that's very understandable. It should. We should never take the judgment of God casually. And it's hard to see some of this. But in another sense, God's people should long for him in his goodness and his righteousness to end evil on earth. And the passage here is addressing a key issue, and that is God will be right and just in his judgments. But when we see that kind of judgment on display, it can be normal for us to wonder, is this right? And it's interesting to me that John, who wrote this, in 90 AD, almost anticipating that doubting, and in verse 7, he puts, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. He brings this assurance to us as God's people. So that leads to an interesting question for us. Why is it difficult for us to see God carry out his judgments. Why is it difficult for us, perhaps uncomfortable, for us to see God carry out his righteous judgment? Perhaps it's because it makes us think of our own sin. And the question that comes to our hearts is, can I find mercy and forgiveness in a God who does this? Yes, yes, loved one, you can. Today you can find mercy and forgiveness in God who is righteous and true. Why else would this make us uncomfortable? Maybe we think of family members or friends we know and, and there will be a time when there is no more grace on earth and when things about God make us uncomfortable as we think of those things, where does our heart go? Will we find mercy in a God who does this? Yes. 
You can find mercy in a God who does this today because he is as good and merciful as he is just and true. Certain things God does in his justice and his judgments may make us feel uncomfortable. And we have to deal with that in a right way. But we need to be careful that we understand the way we deal with it isn't to change God's word or pretend like it's not there or try to change God's judgment somehow. As Americans, we think we have the right to do just about anything. But as Christians, we must affirm all of God's ways as true, including the wisdom of his justice, including when it is uncomfortable for us. Some churches, theologians, and pastors have wandered too far. As I was studying this, I've, I've listened and read to crazy interpretations of what some people who took these passages were doing to try to sanitize God, to try to domesticate God, to try to make it so his judgments aren't real judgments. And they went to all these mental gymnastics and an eighth grader could look at this word in God's Bible and see that what they were doing is not right. It wasn't true. Our role isn't to sanitize or clean up God or make God be more appealing to people. Our, jo our job is to be faithful to what he says here. We don't have to defend God. God can do that on his own. And when we don't understand things, we bring them to him. And we dialogue with him. We don't wander down the path that says there is no judgment and there is no sin. Because at that point, we've no longer taking our authority from God's word. We hold God's word as the authoritative standard for our life. That means even in the hard and the uncomfortable, we trust him. And the way we trust him is we form ourselves, we bend our wills to him. And we say, though this is uncomfortable for me, I trust in who you are because you are greater. God says if you refuse Jesus, who God the Father provided to pay the penalty for sinners, then you will experience horrifying judgment. That's what it says. And as hard as that is to hear, that is what this book is intended to do. The book of Revelation is not an easy book. The purpose of it is to make us think, to make us reflect, to make us reevaluate our lives today so we don't have to go through there. That is grace. This book is meant to motivate us to holy living, to seek after God so that moment we hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. This book gives us a question to ponder. Who is more right, God or me? Who is more right, God or me? As God's people, are we more sensitive to God's position as the offended creator redeemer or are we more sensitive to our own 
sinfully effective, woefully limited sense of what we think is right. This seems to be a good place for us to reflect before we take communion. To think about, maybe God wants you to spend some moments thinking about that question, who is more right, God or me? Or before we go into communion where we celebrate what Jesus did for us on the cross, that keeping us that we don't have to experience these things, we have to take some moments to check our heart. The Bible says to examine yourself before taking communion, to search your heart and see if there's anything offensive. And if there is, repent and ask God for forgiveness. Let's do that now. I'm going to give you a moment of silence before God before we enter our time of communion. Can we find mercy in a God like this? Absolutely yes. God says to the whole world, you do not have to face my wrath for your sin and rebellion because I provided a way in my son Jesus. God said to the whole world, if you take refuge in my son Jesus, you will be saved from the righteous judgment to come because Jesus paid it all. This is the hope we have in Christ as brothers and sisters in Christ, as children of God. This is what we're always to remember when we go and take communion. The gospel story that Jesus went to the cross, that he paid the penalty for our sin, and because of that we could be forgiven we could find mercy. We could find grace from the wrath of God. He paid our price. That's the gospel story. And it's not just the beginning of Christianity. God does not move us past the gospel into deeper things. The gospel does not just ignite the Christian life. It's the very fuel that keeps the Christian life going every single day. And there's nothing greater in all this life to live for. There's nothing greater in all this life to live for than to be faithful to Jesus to the end and to hear when he comes back on that day and he returns where it says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord and on that day hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we live for. And his promises for those in Christ, he keeps us to that place. With that, let's take communion together. You can take your elements. God's word says, 
the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and when he given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. Jesus.